Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. The 80-metre-long dining room was decorated in gold leaf. There was a red dining room and a library with a hand-painted ceiling based on the Sistine Chapel. The design was inspired by Robert Adam and his brothers, the 18th-century neoclassicists who hailed from Scotland but created the London home of the Dukes of Northumberland, Sion House. There were huge Chinese vases and gold sconces and lots of paintings. Now, this is apparently the interior decor favoured by the press tycoons David and Frederick Barclay for their giant fortress-stroke castle on the island of Brekhu in the Channel Islands. It sounds to me a bit like the description of Lord Copper's horrible mansion in Evelyn War's scoop. You worked for the Barclays back in the day, Neil. Did you ever get to, to visit Ala- Brekhu? Alas, I never, I never got vision. the invitation to Brekhu. <laughs> I did have lunch with them at the Ritz. I can claim that. Okay. Um, Aidan was there with his father and uncle. Uh, Aidan being a- the son. Aidan being the son. Yes, quite. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Not the waiter. <laughs> and as was Howard, who I immediately christened Silent Howard because he did not open his mouth for the entire lunch. Yeah. And I think he's stuck to that, more or less, ever since. Anyway, well, Barclay's been in the news recently because of the problems they've had with their most famous asset, the Daily Telegraph, the one you work for, one of Britain's most famous broadsheet papers. And having borrowed heavily to buy it, they've been through a whole thing, being foreclosed on by their bankers over a billion point two billion debt, and have now found new investors from the Middle East to repay it so that they can take back control. Sounds very interesting. And it all comes on top of a Byzantine family dispute that ended up in the courts with all sorts of weird allegations of espionage, tapping, conversations and what have you. So we thought we'd take a look at what must be Britain's most mysterious press dynasty. And who better to talk us through it than Jane Martinson, a journalist and author of a biography of David and Frederick, the original Berkeley twins. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Neil. Well, look, there's always been a bit of a puzzle about the Barclays. You know, they live in a fort on a private island in a tax haven. There are almost no photographs. Yet they also own a newspaper, which digs into other people's private lives. And I suppose they benefit from the fact that there's a press proprietor's code that you don't attack one another. But there's always been this idea that there must be some dark secret behind the Barclays that they're shielding. You've written about them. Is there? I think there's a lot that we didn't know about them. In terms of their, the the sort of murkiest periods, if you like, were the very early days. They came from, it's the most incredible story. I mean, as I say in the book, you know, for people that don't know this story, this should have been one of Britain's great success stories. They really were, you know, they were born into poverty before the war. Their father died when they were very young. They left school without much of an education at 14. You know, they started work. By the time they were in their late 20s, 30s, they had made a fortune out of property at a time when, you know, the post-war rubble, the demand for property and borrowing money. You know, this became a theme of sort of post-war Britain and particularly the Barclays way of doing business. 
they then got embroiled in a, you know, one of the chapters that I found fascinating to research was about the crown agents in the 70s, the sort of er uh, financial scandal. I don't know if you remember it, Neil, actually. but um, I'm afraid I do, since I've been a long time in finance. Basically, the taxpayer, as usual, was ripped off royally. It was... To me, the real sort of the beginning of this, men, actually, I would say, sort of men wanting to make money by borrowing lots and just sort of churning, buying and selling, but actually not paying back when they couldn't pay back their debts, rather than facing any sanction, really. The British taxpayer, (laughs) via the government, rode to their rescue. And this happened actually with the Barclays. So they ended up, I saw no evidence of them paying back. They were, they were a really tiny part. I mean, this was a major scandal. Just to leap in, just to, just so the listener understands, the Crown agents were a, a government-owned entity that decided to go into property lending. The Barclays borrowed lots of money off them, which they couldn't pay back because it was in the middle of the property recession of the 70s. But they found a way through to essentially get out of paying their debts. How did they do that? Well, the point surely is not whether or not they could pay it back. It's just that they found ways to avoiding it. Yes. And this, I think, is the theme that runs right through the development of their empire. But perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are, because, of course, not only does it say much about the way British uh, financial markets and governance has evolved, but it says a huge amount about the Barclays. If we scroll forward to your point Did you find the big secret? There were lots and lots and lots of things that had not been known. They are known as the most secretive and, of course, which goes hand in hand, highly litigious newspaper owners, Mm. possibly that this country has ever known. You know, they an incredible story, but also a fascinating, you know, they were twins, identical twins, mirror twins naturally people to be interested in and then they start buying newspapers and as we all know there's nothing as interesting to many journalists as media owners and yet they still managed to keep there was only one photo in circulation of the two of them and that was when they were knighted in 2000 so they'd managed to keep all of this completely hidden effectively until i mean the, the sort of great irony in a way is it was only when they used the law against each other first with a bizarre um, bugging scandal in the Ritz Hotel, and then actually a divorce case where Sir Frederick's wife, partner of almost 50 years by that point, left him in March 2019. And that divorce, you know, the court order and the contempt case that sort of resulted in that meant that this sort of lid of secrecy got ripped off, essentially, which what was very helpful for my book, because I could then obviously go into quite a lot of details to try to uncover. It seemed to me so astonishing that these people were newspaper owners, but also so very powerful. You know, they are a private family. It is privately held, but a huge influence. They employed 20,000 people, not just through the media, but through this vast business empire. And yet no one really knew about them. I mean, compare them to Rupert Murdoch, compare them to any media owner or any actually business of that size. And there was just so little known until now. Well, maybe what we should do just before we get into the meat of this discussion is if you could just take us through in a very abbreviated way the positive history of where they went from, as you say, their early days owning hotels in West London 
to where we are now. It is a great story because after they this near escape where they did manage not to pay back this debt or, we, you know, there's no evidence that they paid back their debt. In the 80s, they made their absolutely the deal that made them. And that was they bought a very unloved shipping conglomerate. They sold just the brewery part, which no one seemed to have even noticed, for five times the amount they paid for the whole just a few years later. That deal, which was in 83, was so successful that it gave them a reputation evermore. It had, had all the hallmarks of the way they did business. They they moved very quickly. They moved without doing what seemed like a lot of due diligence, but they insisted on secrecy above all. And then there was a series of these sort of incredible deals. There were so many businesses, you know, they went into. So not just property, which was really what they focused on mostly, hotels, but, you know, retail. In the 90s, they bought the Ritz, which was the hotel that they always wanted. But they had at one point, in a space of a decade, they bought and sold 15 luxury hotels. They also bought Brecu. They got involved. They then got involved in retail in a big way, as well as the media. In one six-month period, they managed to merge the old Littlewoods catalogue with Grand Universal stores. And in the same six months, finally get hold of the Telegraph. And that really, that carried on. They did lots of other deals, but that was the essence of this sort of conglomerate, effectively, that lasted all the way through to 2008. With the addition, of course, which many of your readers might be interested in, in by their sort of what they did with this island where they bought Breku in the Channel Islands and built at an enormous cost, a sort of estimated 100 million, the biggest private home stroke fortress for 200 years. I think that the, the leap motif here is the fact that nearly all these deals were done with a lot of borrowed money. And as you say in your book, there is very little evidence of them ever paying much of it back. And I think that their combination of knowledge of the law and the ability to craft contracts, which basically left the lender swinging in the breeze if they didn't want to pay the money back, I wouldn't call it criminality, but this is the basis of their fortune borrow the money and don't pay it back. And so, so where next did they time... not pay it back? Where did they... Give me an example. Not only I did mean... we have the early example, but we had a great example when a major bank, one of their bigger lenders, 1.2 billion, it took Lloyds Bank more than a decade to claw back or to get hold of any actual asset that would pay back this enormous debt. That's the ultimate demonstration of how they operated, that they could manage to spin this out for 10 years and then produce the rabbit out of the hat as they've done recently with the replacement lender. But do you think that there was any actual criminality involved in any of this or was it just clever exploitation of the law and the ability to delay? I never found any any example of criminality. It always stayed on the right side of the law. One of the fascinating things I found was their use of this unbelievably complex sort of phalanxes. I mean, most most companies, particularly private companies, have you know offshore holdings, and but the sheer number and complexity 
plus the use of intercompany loans and the use, so there was very little tax paid i mean that was said in court many times you know they avoided tax at all times mm. it was all set up the way they set up their empire the way they lived their lives was never to pay any tax but they also sent there was quite a lot of money sent offshore by uk businesses which would borrow lots of money and then the money hundreds of millions of pounds i mean at one point it was a 700 million pound owed the or sent offshore an intercompany loan interest fee unsecured at the sort of littlewood shop direct arm of the business now there were phalanxes not just of lawyers but tax advisors accountants and auditors that signed off these accounts and there has never been any comeback on those people that did that and interestingly enough This has only just happened in the last sort of the turn of 2024, you know, while we're waiting for this really complicated Telegraph sale, which uh, I'm sure we'll go on to discuss. The independent directors of the Telegraph Media Group have referred what they have described as suspicious criminal activity to the National Crime Agency about money going from TMG to other Barclay businesses. Now, there is absolutely no evidence that this is criminal activity, but it's interesting that only now when they're preparing this business for a new owner, that this has even been referred. So it's the complexity and the transparency, you know, as we know as journalists, a lack of transparency, a lack of openness, you know, the best disinfectant is openness. A system that totally brilliantly used by the Barclay family over the years, Barclay brothers over the years, of not actually keeping a lot of this obscure cannot be good, cannot be good for public accountability, cannot be good for the way we understand business. And that, to me, is the real lesson of this, which somehow we don't seem to be. There are no sort of campaigns or marches or the government being you know, asked to do more on this. I truly believe that it's sort of we allow it to happen to our great disservice as a country, whether it's sort of criminal or not. We need to insist that there is greater transparency. Do you think that David essentially cheated his brother in the end? Well, all I can say is that Frederick called it the worst mistake of his life to hand over control. (laughs) That's a bit of a clue, really, isn't it? Because he... Thieves fall out. What he didn't seem to realise was that with 75% held by three of his nephews, who and he was incredibly close to Aidan and... Howard. And they really had, I think, partly because they had really been involved in the business. They were older than his daughter, quite a lot older. And so, you know, you could see that he felt they were probably natural business successes. However, he didn't realise that sort of during the divorce proceedings, you know, that they turned off the tap, as he put it, for money. So it sort of left him in this position of not having the same levers of control. And then they there were disagreements over what should be sold. So for a long time, they were looking to sell bits of the business. Nothing ever seemed to be sold. You know, he was keener on the Ritz. They wanted to sell the Ritz. It became a family breakdown, which then results in these incredibly secretive people bugging each other in their most private room, a conservatory, which is really quite a small room, which isn't on any plan of the Ritz Hotel that you can see, which is their most sort of private room where they all meet and smoke their cigars and where Frederick would meet his daughter and his own financial advisors because by then they had completely broken down and they weren't running the business together. And they bugged these conversations, which ended up 
in a high court legal, astonishing high court legal action. Perhaps they thought that uh, the high court would allow it to be held in camera. They tried. With both both cases, they tried to um, stop any reporting of it, actually. Yeah, both the, 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 the divorce case the as divorce well, case. yes. Yeah. So uh, when you have these sort of uh, family businesses going through a very contested succession... I suppose you could say that the Barclays themselves benefited in in some ways from Elliman and from Littlewoods and the Moores family inability to come up with an agreed line of succession. You find these empires which are held together often by stick and string falling apart. Do you think that's the fate that awaits the Barclays now that these sort of uh, the game kind of appears to be much more complicated now for them and they also can't agree on the way forward among themselves well in terms of obviously their relationship it's quite hard to see how that sort of ever knits back together but it's hard to say they will not own the telegraph i mean that i think whatever happens you know it seems more likely depending on this inquiry that you know they've done a deal to more or less sell it as part of a debt swap to redbird imi so they won't be owning the telegraph and spectator They've sold the Ritz. They're left with Littlewoods and lots of properties, obviously. But, you know, in terms of their business success and what happens next, what's happening on the island in Brecu is is really interesting, which is the, the properties they own in Sark have been mothballed for years. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about that, about Brecu and their row with their neighbour at Sark, which I think is quite entertaining? I think their whole story is, it's, as you can probably tell, and I hope you can tell from my book, you know, it's, it just is so fascinating. But the Sark, there were sort of points where I thought you could make a whole book about Sark. And funnily enough, I mean, it was Sark, which was sort of the most reported bit. No pictures, obviously, and no, not to the interviews, but when they bought Brecu, the twins, it was advertised. I've, I've seen the advert, you know, this sort of uh, tax-free, it was a rock, you know, it is a rock in the middle of the channel, tax-free island. They paid 2.3 million for it. Then they spent a fortune, 100 million on this fortress. But what they were very unhappy with, and obviously they didn't realise, is that they were actually governed and ruled over by the smallest crown dependency in the UK, which is the island of Sark, mm. which was at the point the sort of last feudal state in Europe governed by a senor. They then began an incredible, I mean, you know, if you want an example of their use of lawfare, what they did, and then they launched a newspaper. I mean, if you also how they, the, the sort of use of newspapers to sort of show their opinions, you know, they compared the senor to the sort of Nazi Germany to the to Hitler the constant, I mean, just people that were sort of, people that live on the island, it's an island of 500-ish people. The legal threats were astonishing. And after 2007, David Barclay in particular, who's very keen on sort of, he, he twice offered to buy the seniorship to become the senior, which is very complicated. But, you know, you have to go to the Queen and it's always, it's not straightforward. It's not like buying a hotel, for example. It's just the sort of thing that the Barclays would like, of course. What? The complexity and... Exactly. Completely independent. Control, a desire not to pay any tax and total control were hallmarks of the way they, they live their lives, according to a high court judge, not just my own opinion. But this was the way they lived their lives. And what more control than to be the lord of a tax-free island in the middle of the channel, to literally be the king 
of that domain. Breku now, you say in the book it costs, what, something at £10,000 a week to maintain, or some fantastic sum. What's happened to it? What's mm. happening to it now? I mean, so during the divorce, the first thing that the family, the nephews, the sons of Sir David, objected to the media. So it was an open court. So we can all report on it. Well, obviously, just it was just the Guardian and the Financial Times and Bloomberg and the Telegraph there. weren't there. No, <laughs> the Telegraph were there, but no one ever. There was not a word written about it. No, nor the Mail actually. The first thing they objected to was whether or not the press could report that Sir David Barclay was buried. He didn't die on Breku, but he was flown out to be buried in his own specially commissioned chapel, uh, sort of sanctified. And Is that the one they, that looks like the Sistine Chapel? <laughs> but they objected to this sort of, you would think if you had an island, you might want in some way to be yeah. buried yeah. and scattered. And the judge quite rightly said that given that Sir Frederick was meant to be, there was the nominal sort of 50% owner of Breku, that was the only bit that was kept with this different, slightly different structure, or his daughter was 50% owner of the island. His ability to sell it was very important. So the fact that his brother was buried there was probably going to make a difference. That, though, has become... So Alistair Barclay, the youngest son of David, has the, the half share and is more or less the one who has been going to the island of Sark. Fascinatingly enough, <laughs> in the latest twist, the current seigneur who yeah. rejected on the day of his father's funeral, Sir David wrote to him not to say condolences for your loss, but to say, I want to buy it with £2 million due. The seigneurship he wanted to... Yes. He, however, has, in a sort of partnership with this local entrepreneur um, and a sort of big group of investors, or they are actually looking to buy the assets owned by the Barclay family on Sark, partly, you know, that they argue to try to do something with them because the economy on Sark could actually do with the hotels and everything being open and owned by other people. But um, that's all fascinating. So just to come back to Neil's point, he seems to be saying, if I read him correctly, that the empire, such as it is, doesn't really have any cash flows. Is that right? No, and actually, I think Sir Frederick, in his evidence to the court, the chapter about the divorces, there is no no money. You know, the, the cash flow, the, the idea that the, the sort of businesses on the ground had started to face more financial difficulties, and then the sort of cash got turned off. I mean, it is interesting, and I think worth noting, however, that between 2014, when he had the big split with his twin, and 2019, when his wife left him, and the bugging started. Sir Frederick spent £128 million in those five years on buying his own mansion in St James's on his own yacht, on his living expenses. So there was quite a lot of money until 2019. And do you think it's disappeared or just invisible? They just don't want to give it back. Yeah, quite. <laughs> I think it's much, much, much less than it was. I think they still have property and you know some businesses that are working I mean that obviously the the retail group very it's now called the old Littlewoods retail group is highly indebted but there is a lot of money that has that is offshore but I think obviously times have been tough but there, there is you know a lot of family property for example I think one thing that is probably an obvious point but I detail in the book you know the Sunday Times even last year 
had the estimated wealth of the Barclay family at £7 billion. Mm. What becomes obvious is the reason that figure was kept at such an artificially high number were direct emails from David Barclay to the people that compiled that book, saying we are a private company, no one can understand how much money we have, but I can tell you that we have quite a lot of money in, including, and this to me was the sort of astonishing moment, they were absolutely relying on this case against HMRC. They reclaimed 1.2 billion of OBEG VAT, which was paid by Littlewoods. But essentially, it came to that they wanted, or they asked for, this unclaimed compound interest on the VAT overpayments. So the British taxpayer at one point, David says, well, we have got this big outstanding case. We have won the first case. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court had not said, no, enough, you cannot claim all this compound interest, that would have cost the British taxpayer a total, not just for the Barclays, 1.2 for the Barclays and 17 billion as a whole, to the British taxpayer. Now, of course, that 1.2 billion we now know from the British taxpayer could have been used to pay off Lloyds Bank, but it never was. But they never believed in paying off these debts. That's the whole point. You know, it's all very well for them to say they're worth seven billion in the Sunday Times rich list, but, if you're not but you never, back, you, you never off. see the other side of the balance sheet. <laughs> but if I suppose if you're never going to pay the debts back, back, it doesn't matter. <laughs> This, the last chapter in this story, I think, is yet to be written. Well, <laughs> but well, no doubt you'll write it. Well, <laughs> I hope so. Well, well, Volume <laughs> two. <laughs> Downfall. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.